Welcome to Dialogue Across Difference, an event series hosted by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Join us as Center Director Larry Jacobs and guests engage in conversations across the political and policy spectrum on issues of the day. So many stakeholders what uh, what can you bring to the table? What are the big challenges that you face um, dealing with county attorneys, with all the different uh, elements and stakeholders? Well, Norm, we have some power and we have some influence. They're not the same. Influence is the bully pulpit. Speaking up on the issue, writing about the issue, showing up when the issue is being discussed, telling people this is what we need to hear. This is what we need to do. And then there's power. I do uh, regulate every charity in the state of Minnesota. We do um, a certain amount of criminal prosecution. In the state of Minnesota, the state law allows the um, county attorney to be the first line of criminal prosecution, except for in the area of Medicaid fraud. Uh, and then, um, but we often get referrals and we do them. And the governor has a prerogative to hand us the case. We end up, that means we end up doing about 40 cases uh, every few years and, uh, and they're serious cases. Um, we also sit on um, sex trafficking uh, co commissions and task forces. We sit on gun task forces. We sit on violent crime task forces in a policymaking role. And so we have... Those two things together, plus, you know, we are members of the County Attorneys Association. Uh, and so we have both some power and some influence. Uh, and, and what I see, if we look at this thing as like a chain, imagine a person in a mental health crisis. Um, they're going to be contacted by family. What's the what, what resources do they have available? We have a good change in state law, which allows 911 dispatcher to inform, to be informed that this person's in a mental health crisis and then to channel resources accordingly. Then you're gonna have probably some, and then you have the police involved. Uh, what, what is their background and training? Uh, and are they aware of the resources available to them? And if you look at every police department in the state of Minnesota, are they up to uh, the informational um, threshold where they know what they can do and what's available to them. Then after that, we got to figure out what about our ERs? What about our direct service? And then we got to ask ourselves, where are our hospitals ready? Are our insurance providers ready? Uh, and then I think that it is important to have a discussion about something else, which is that we're not producing enough psychiatrists. We're not producing enough uh, psychologists, social workers with a mental health background. We need more of those kind of people and part of that has to do with reimbursement rates. Yeah. And, and then uh, just to wrap up, you know, uh, a lot of our um, major mental health uh, inst institutions uh, that, that are hospitals and things like that, uh, you know, they are 
even though in Minnesota they're nonprofits, they still are trying to make money. And this is not a remunerative area. So we've got to figure that out. And of course, I left out the jails, which are a critical part of this conversation. So we've got to intervene at every step. One of those, I think that Sue Adder holds right. We've never, we didn't, we're not, we don't need to rebuild the system. We need to build it, but we have everybody we need to tell us what we need to do. Now we just got to do it. So uh, just one question about your role. Um, the, uh, I was talking at one point with a former president of the University of Pennsylvania, it's appropriate here in a university setting, who said that her job was like being a caretaker at a cemetery. There are a lot of people uh, beneath her, but nobody listened. Uh, <laughs> uh, yep. And uh, you have uh, a lot of county attorneys. Yep. Do they listen? You know, I, I'm not their boss. Yep. They are independently elected. But uh, I will say that by and large, they're people who are responsible for delivering good outcomes with a limited budget to do it all. So they're open, you know, yeah. they're looking for answers, you know, they, they the incentives are, are there um, and we do have avenues for conversation. Uh, at, at one of our earlier meetings, uh, Blair Anderson, chief in St. Cloud made an op- interesting observation. So often when we're trying to figure out a problem, we don't always have everybody at the table to help deliver the outcomes that we need. Sometimes it's just a, an invitation you know, to say, what do you need to help us deliver this? So I would say that when it comes to the to the prosecutors, part of what we must do is as we are developing this this train of how we're going to manage this problem is to include them and the sheriffs in the conversation, because the sheriffs run the jails, prosecutors run, the uh, you know, do the criminal prosecutions. Um, And, you know, look, the, the prosecutors are a diverse bunch, but they all care about victims and don't want frequent flyers. So we, I think we, I think that's where we are with it, but they've got to be a part of the conversation. So the sheriffs that I've talked to um, don't want to be the repository uh, of people with serious mental illness. Right. And we also know that among the employment crises we have are uh, prison personnel. They're poorly paid. Yep. They're tough jobs. In some ways, it's a much worse career than a police officer where we know already. And from what uh, Dr. Alexander said, you know, it was a big problem um, that uh, they don't have any of the resources that the police have, but they're dealing with a population where they're also trained to escalate. If somebody doesn't obey commands, right. Is do you have this sense that sheriffs can be an important part of the solution here because it would make their lives so much easier, not to mention they uh, have more resources if they didn't have as many people in jail? Answer is absolutely yes. I mean, we did a thing that was wise to do, but we haven't really backed it up with what we need. What I mean is the initial screening for mental health when people enter the jail. So now, you, know, you remember years ago, uh, we, we, we had state mental health hospitals. And so people, a lot of those people were there. When we stopped doing that, People were out there on their own, but we weren't screening them. Now we screen them. So now we know a certain percentage is, uh, you know, both there on perhaps violation of a criminal law and mental health crisis. So what, but what, but the question is, what are we doing about it? Right. And, you know, and again, mental health is all you got to, in fact, you got to factor in chemical dependency, CDMI, 
right? These things often come together. Um, and so sheriffs are an essential part of this. The sheriffs have to deal with a lot of problems. They deal with uh, people who are uh, might, might need to uh, get treatment right away. They deal with medical issues. They deal with uh, people who have been found to be um, ineligible to stand trial because of mental health um, incapacitation. And yet they're not, there's no other place else to send them, right? So sheriffs have a handful of problems in this space, but I, I think that as a society, I don't know if we're listening to them well enough. They must be part of the conversation. They're a key player in this whole thing. So one of the things that we've seen, you mentioned uh, drug use. Um, the vast majority of people with serious mental illness, especially those who uh, have anosognosia and resist treatment, right. um, self-medicate with drugs. Yep. Um, our jails and prisons are filled with people because of mandatory minimum sentences and because of the way we've dealt with drug cases in the past. Right. What can we do about that? Well, we've, we've got to treat mental illness and chemical dependency uh, as more of a medical problem, maybe even a social problem. But what we do is identify it as a moral failing and a criminal conduct. And I think we've got a break with that. Uh, but let me just put one more complication in the mix. Neighbors, your average citizen, they're like, look, I don't know what's wrong with them but they're creating a havoc in my neighborhood. Somebody come do something. Yeah. Now, the neighbors aren't saying do anything. They're saying do something, do the right thing, do what makes sense to do. So the fact that you have some folks, you know, kind of maybe CDMI, maybe uh, they're violating panhandling, anti-panhandling statutes, you know, they might be, you know, stealing stuff, breaking stuff, public urination, all that. They might be violating some laws. Our answer is use that to to criminalize them. Our answer needs to be a, a, a medical approach. And uh, you know, interesting thing uh, is that we have the capacity. We spend buckets of money. If you look at it as, a, as a, an, aggra an aggregation, what if we put some of it up front? We might save some on the back end. The you know you know you you've seen people save a penny and then uh, and and then waste a pound, right? You've seen us, you know, uh, spend money, you know, say not do something on the front end that's cheap and end up spending a whole lot of money. Keep in mind, when they wanted to solve the budget crisis in Flint, they cut off the chemical that stopped the corrosion of the pipes. Oh, yeah, we saved some money and then caused a billion dollar problem. So that that's the nature of this, too. We could save a lot of money if we just did that intervention early stop viewing this as a moral failing or a criminal problem and get, we need housing and housing. Everybody needs housing. Uh, people who are not in any way touched by the mental health crisis are in crisis when it comes to housing. So it, it, there are a few basic societal changes we got to make. We also got to ask our get real about another very difficult moral slash legal slash social issue. And that is harm reduction. A lot of times, um, if you say we're going to allow you to use drugs in this zone, but you're going to have clean needles and safety in this, this is a moral outrage. People are ambivalent about it. They're not sure they want to do it. You're allowing them people to do this. How could you do that? Yeah, but 
if you don't let them do it, they're going to take the drugs anyway, and then they're going to give themselves serious illnesses, which are going to land them in the ER. We've got to have, a, 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 dare I say, an adult conversation about harm reduction and get serious about how we, we manage that. Because until we have that kind of dialogue, we're going to keep, um, we're going to keep creating some problems, I think. You know, you've raised a couple of things that uh, have uh, uh, triggered me or concerned me. Um, one certainly is that, as you talk about things like harm reduction, we're in a tribalized environment now. And so many of these issues end mm. up uh, being handled through a very different prism. Right. If you're for it, I've got to be against it. Yep. Or you just get uh, these kinds of uh, rigid ideological views. True. Um now, it's true that for a lot of the issues of reforming the mental health system, we actually have been able to bridge some of those gaps. But as you look at it from somebody who's been involved in politics in the state at different levels for so long, Minnesota has not been immune at all to these uh, issues. How serious is that as a problem now in grappling with this broad array of problems like criminal justice policing and mental health? I just want to say before I address that, you have been one of the um, best people at, uh, at, at, at bipartisan uh, dialogue. I mean, I just want to I hope you all know that, you know, normally in, in, in the state, uh, in, the, in the District of Columbia is known uh, to bring people together across that divide. We need to do it. Let me tell you, Norm, why I think that there is real hope for us. Um, you know about the opioid litigation. Yeah. Um, we, you know, my office, the attorney general's office sued the opioid manufacturers, got, you know, a, a amount of money for people. But then we needed a legislative, we need the legislature to get involved to, to, to distribute it properly. And because we wouldn't talk to everybody, because we got everybody involved early, Man, we passed we passed the uh, the opioid bill in the last legislative session, a session where it didn't. I mean, the stuff that we actually passed, you could probably count on one hand. But we were able to do that. Why? Because we had representatives from the Republican caucus and the Democratic one. And we had senators and House members, all who came together to work together. Why did they do it? Because opioid addiction doesn't know party affiliation. <laughs> And you got Republican members who've lost loved ones. You got Democratic members who've lost loved ones. We kind of figured out we got to do this. This issue holds the same kind of promise. What we've got to be able to do is have a, a long time. If, once we get our proposed blueprint together, and you've been cautioning us, we don't want to just have an interesting conversation. We don't want to just identify a problem. We want to do something about it. So thank you for that. Once, but once we get that plan tight, then we are, the next thing I do is go sell it to everybody early so that we, so everybody can own it. And so if, when that, once everybody owns it, we're going to minimize the political uh, back and forth. On the issue of harm reduction, I really think we need to engage faith communities involved in this. Yeah. We got to have, you know, churches, synagogues, mosques, temples, folks, not just the religious folks, you know, let's bring in the, Secular humanists too. bring in the, you know, I don't care, you know, but, but, but the people who are motivated beyond just the material, if you know what I mean. And we, we've got to get those folks in, in the room to help 
facilitate this conversation because if you are a hardcore conservative Republican who has an addicted child, maybe, then you you know they're going to go use, even if you say not to. <laughs> you know, you know that you're not naive. You you know you you know you know what's up. That person who's been through that might be able to help their colleagues understand moralizing here won't get that person clean. We've got to do some other things. In town, there's a place called uh, Teen Challenge. Um, politically, they're probably on the right side of the middle of the political divide. They're effective though. And they can help folks understand who, who are, you know, might be inclined to resist something like harm reduction. They can get them to understand you know, uh, why somebody might propose it. And it doesn't make that person a bad person for saying that maybe we should look at this. But that's the kind of thing we, we don't, I think we need to involve more people in the conversation, get it to them early, and we can bridge some of these partisan divides. As you know, I, I thought it was uh, pretty partisan when, when I was there, uh, from the looks of what's been going down on January 6th, it's worse now but I'm still optimistic about where we can get because everybody loves their kids. So uh, you've, you've had this great success with uh, the opioid issue. Mm -hmm. We know that there is a broad coalition for criminal justice reform, yep. but it also foundered uh, in the Senate this time for a variety of reasons. And it raises another, I think, quite delicate, but really important issue, which is that, the race issue has become yep. even more polarizing. Uh, the use of the term critical race theory, which is driving a deeper wedge. We know that uh, a lot of these issues end up being uh, divided on partisan lines because of these terrible divisions on race. Yeah. What can we do about that, Keith? Well, you know what? Uh, I'm glad you, first of all, Let's point it out. You know, uh, if you've ever noticed a conversation around race, you see black and brown people talking ex explicitly about race, but everybody talks about race, not just explicitly, right? Um, when people say this country has moved on and away from Americans like me, what are they saying? We all know, but we act like we don't know, but we know. Here's the thing. We have got to uh, continue to be forthright about this kind of stuff, understanding that there's one thing about race in America, people, their natural inclination, in my opinion, is toward human solidarity. Yet it is a effective tool for demagoguery. <laughs> if you really wanna get in charge of something, Start talking about how you're going to stand up for this group, which is long abused by those people. And there will be some people who will be like, yeah, we have got to have a much more deliberate uh, movement toward um, uh, multiracial democracy, inclusive democracy. It, it, we've, we, we cannot allow people who would divide us to, to control, the, control the scene. We've got to be overt about it. And let me just also say this, and this is going to be slightly controversial, so I hope not to offend anyone. 
But I think that one of the problems here is that we all, and I mean white people, black people, everybody people, we act like white people don't have problems. And yet they do. And so when we talk about racism, usually what we're saying is that this black person suffered as a result of white racism. But the truth is, white men over 50, non-college, are dying from cirrhosis, opioids, and suicide. And we're not even talking about it because those people are not allowed to have problems. If they go to a psychologist, it's like, well, they suck it up, deal with it. What are you? I never dealt with that when I was, I'm like, you know, and, and so how do they deal with it? Alcohol. I'm serious. Look at the, I mean, particularly in the middle of this pandemic, yeah. we have seen tremendous human suffering but we don't talk to young white men who might be inclined to shoot up the school before they do it because we live in a society where people like that don't have problems. Who has problems? Black people in the ghetto have problems. They have dysfunction. We're very all comfortable with that. But guess what? If you're human, we all have problems. Can we just agree that we all need a little bit of support and it, it's okay, and it doesn't make you less of a man or less of a this or less of a that. This is, this is the problem that we're facing. It's not going to be easy. I would recommend to you a book by, that is called Dying of Whiteness by a guy named Metzl, M-E-T-L-Z. And he looks at a few different parts of the country. He looks at guns. Now, we all know that there's this huge gun divide in our country. I'm not here to jump into the middle of that right now. But what I am saying is that in the state of Missouri, when we said guns here, guns there, guns everywhere, have two, have three, have 20, have whatever you want, white male over 50 suicide shot up. Suicide may be the leading cause of gun-related death. Am I right? Can somebody fact check me on that? It is. And who are the victims? You know what I mean? Why can't we have some compassion for our white brothers who are clearly hurting? We don't do it because I think some of the ideology doesn't permit it. Also in this book is this, that he compares Tennessee and Connecticut, Tennessee and Kentucky. Kentucky adopted the Medicaid expansion and called it Connect. Y'all familiar with that? So they were able to help people get healthcare access, including mental health access that they never could before. In Tennessee, they were like, why don't y'all be like more, be more like Kentucky? They're like, well, I don't wanna put my money into no welfare queens and illegals. I'm like, yeah, but you got chronic diabetes. You need the help. Yeah, I know that, but I don't want my money going to them. That's a racism problem. I'm like, so you're willing to get weak, worse healthcare because you think that is what you need to do to defend, you know, this identity that you've imagined in your head. I'm telling you, racism's bad for human beings. We need to get rid of it. We need to get out of the cycle of blame shame. We need to find our common humanity. And we need to be pretty bold about asserting the fact that America is a multiracial democracy, in which everybody's included. So I would... 
powerful and important. Um, I want to add one other little element here since we started to talk about guns. The approach of many, the NRA and others now, is it's not a gun problem, it's a mental health problem. And it takes it back to the stigma surrounding mental health. We should note at the outset that far more people with serious mental illness are victims of violence, right? Uh, and a whole lot are. Um, that in those small, the small number of instances where you have somebody with a serious mental illness who uh, engages in uh, gun violence at a mass level, in every instance they are untreated. Right. And they're often untreated because of a broken mental health care system where they refuse treatment and nobody can get it for them. Uh, and we need to change the way we talk about both guns and mental illness. It right. worsens the stigma, but it also takes us further away from reaching any kind of agreement on what we do about gun violence, which, as you say, is far more about suicide yeah. or domestic Yep. Uh, incidents. The yep. murders are much more in the domestic scene uh, yep. than more uh, broadly. But that's one other little soapbox that we can uh, deal with in the future. We're going to have to wrap up in a minute. I just I want you to reserve for you the last word, but also you're a leader in this state. You've proven it in so many ways. Um, I'm hoping you can use that leadership as we go forward to try and pull those stakeholders together in a better way and deal with all of these, uh, with uh, this uh, set of problems that we have. There are, we need some resources, it's true, but what we also know from Miami and other places is that a small initial investment actually results in enormous payoffs. Just to pick one example, we know that Minneapolis in the last year, admittedly an unusual year, $100 million in taxpayer money that went out because of the uh, effects of violence involving yep. police, yep. Um, that if we can have less violence, which means more people living, it also means huge savings. Right. So using that bully pulpit becomes an important focus and you're the guy to do it. And I hope you will. Well, let me just say that I'm absolutely committed. The resources of my office are, we will pledge and commit to resolving this problem. It's a statewide problem. It involves all 5.6 million of us, but we are going to pull on the, uh, the good advice of you, Norm, also Dr. Gilligan, also uh, the judge. Uh, you know, we got, you know, we, Hey, we got Larry, man. You know, we got, we got Larry Jacobs here. And we got, so we have a great team to move forward. We got Sue Adderhold. I don't know if, you know if Sue's still there. We got some amazing leaders in the legislative uh, branch. You know, I saw Mindy Greiling was speaking and uh, John Marty was here. And I don't want to leave anyone out. We got great police leadership, uh, Kelly McCarthy and, and, and others. We got some good police leadership coming in. You know, uh, of course, I met Blair, Blair Anderson was here, but also I believe Cedric uh, Alexander is game and both we got two mayors who want to do this and many more mayors than that so we have what we need what we got to do is come together unify and not quit and always keep the victims in mind can I close on something so when Hennepin County passed Hennepin Health you know they got a waiver to to be able to do use Medicaid dollars for housing um, they wanted me to come see how they were doing and so I, I went and they told me how they save money on the ER. And they told me how they save money on this and that. And they told me this, all this stuff about money. But then they introduced me to somebody who was part of the program. And this person said, 
for the first time in years, my family is willing to let me come home for Thanksgiving dinner. When I was not doing good, they didn't know what to do with me. Um, they tried and now I can, I can go home for Thanksgiving dinner and I'm, I'm really, I got tears. Listen to this person. Think about the mentally ill person, untreated, rejected because they're weird. Um, just, and, and just them being able to find human connection and life once again. One of the things that Dr. Gilligan and the judge pointed out is that these illnesses actually are quite treatable. That's not to say everybody's going to be treated, but, it, but their, their, their prognosis is better than stuff we deal with every day. So let's just make this commitment. Uh, if Republicans say that the gun violence because of mental illness and the liberals and Democrats say, well, mental illness all on its own needs attention, then we can all get together around dealing with mental illness. Well, you would think, right? So let's just go do it. Thank you for that. And we're going to wrap. I, I have one more little thing that I want to add to that. I actually don't like the term mental illness. Mm. This is a brain disease. Okay. It's an organ disease. It's no different than a disease of another organ. It's no different than pancreatic cancer. I can't tell you the number of times that my uh, well-meaning, highly educated and smart friends and acquaintances would say to me about my son, why don't you just kick him in the ass as if it were a willful thing? Right. If we embrace the idea that people who are weird in this sense have a disease of an organ, uh, we're going to have more compassion for right. them, but we're also going to find a better way of dealing with them. We've had a, a quite a remarkable morning and early afternoon so far. It is the beginning, as I said before, not the end. Thank you for your leadership. I want to thank Larry Jacobs, especially, uh, and Mindy Greiling, Ron Latz, who helped a great deal in helping to put this program together. To Steve Leifman, who journeyed from Miami and is going to have a hell of a difficult time getting back to Miami, as it turns out. To Dan Gillison for his leadership uh, at NAMI. To the University of Minnesota and the Humphrey School itself for all that they've been doing. And they're committed to helping move this forward, to make this state and this city what they used to be, better than it used to be, what they can be, and to be leaders for the nation instead of a punching bag, as we have been in the last few years. So right. thank you all very much. Thanks, Norm.